Welcome back to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast, where every week we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way that only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can, by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will actually matter. I'm Alex Rorty, political correspondent, and today I am joined by Adam Walner, McClatchy's politics editor and forever Giannis Antetokounmpo's hype man. Welcome, Walner. It's great to be here. I'm very impressed that you pronounced uh, the reigning MVP's name correctly. And I'm in good spirits today, coming off uh, a great win against the, the Clippers Wednesday night. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm fired up for this okay, podcast. Okay, we don't need to your talk, life story. We don't NBA, need your life story. And to talk politics, whatever we want to do, I'm ready. I just would note that the Rockets also won last night. And today we are also joined by Emily Cadet, politics reporter extraordinaire, whose NBA allegiances, I must admit, I do not know. Sacramento Kings. Oh, the yeah. Kings. Oh, Sacramento native, Sacktown. Oh, right, Although right. Although I have to confess, I don't follow the Kings as closely as I did in the 1990s when Chris <laughs> Weber and Mike Bibby. <laughs> those are good, those those are good, those good teams. Doug Christie were on that team. You, uh, Lottie you, Dottie. You, yeah. Lottie Dottie, my God. Yeah. Uh, that was now, a fun team. Now you're taking me back. Yeah, they deserve to beat the Lakers. So I don't know how they did last night, I'm sorry. Okay. They probably that's, lost. That's, yeah, they're it's off early, to a rough early in the season. It's early in the season. Okay. So we're not actually going to talk about the NBA for this entire podcast, believe it or not. Uh, this week, we want to talk about uh, politics. We want to talk about the presidential race and one of the surprising developments in the Democratic primary, this odd fixation on Iowa. We touched on it in our last episode. We want to dive even deeper uh, in this episode. We're also going to ponder which candidate might exit the race after, you might recall, Beto O'Rourke exited the race. Something of a surprise, something of a major surprise, actually, last week. We're going to speculate who might be next, if, if anyone. But first off, we've got actual election results from which we can spin our hot takes. The Kentucky governor's race yeah. was, was this week uh, in a surprise, another surprise here. The Republican governor, Matt Bevin, lost to Democrat uh, Andy Bashir and a race that had everyone speculating, uh-oh, uh, maybe Republicans have have reason to worry uh, when it comes twenty when it comes to twenty twenty, including President Trump. Warner, what what say you? What what is the the sort of takeaway from from this race? Yeah, I don't think we want to read too much into the results from the Kentucky governor's race in terms of you know you know trying to find any clues for what's going to happen in twenty twenty. Uh, you know, a lot of reasons to think this was kind of a unique race. Uh, Matt Bevin. The Republican governor there, a uniquely unpopular, you know, I think his approval rating was it was in the low 30s in, in some polls. And he, you know, and, and at this moment, at, le at least, you know, things could, could change here in the next couple hours. Um, you know, he, he is behind the rate. The AP hasn't even called the race. He's asking for a re-canvas. So we're going to be, you know, going through that for the next couple of weeks. But at the moment, it looks like, you know, if he does lose, he would be the only Republican statewide official who actually lost in Kentucky uh, on Tuesday night. Um, but, you know, I, but I still think there are, you know, a couple things to note here from a national perspective. One, President Trump was unable to drag him across the finish line. This was sure. something that sure. uh, we yeah. talked about a lot in 2018. I mean, particularly in primaries, Trump was mm -hmm. really able to have a big impact in handpicking his candidates and being able to, to you know, kind of uh, drag them over the finish line. That was not able to happen here, despite uh, the fact that he did a big rally for Bevin Monday night. So it doesn't ref reflect so great on Trump, but, you know, you know I, it's not like Kentucky is going to be all of a sudden in play in 2020, either at the presidential level or at the Senate level, where uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is facing re-election. Yeah, if, if, of course, if Kentucky were in play, Donald Trump would be in a lot of trouble. Yes, exactly. A lot yeah, of trouble. Right. At that for, point, for it's a landslide. But I do think the one thing that Republicans do have to worry about, um, just looking at the broader map 
from Tuesday night because there were elections, uh, local elections all across the country is that, I mean, their suburban problems are still very real. I mean, this is something that we've we've known really ever since, uh, you know, Trump took office and really, you know, what came to the fore in the 2018 midterm elections. Uh, you know, suburban voters who were had, had been reliably Republicans for a very long time are, I mean, at this point, are they functionally Democrats? I mean, that's really the question at this point. I mean, you know, at a certain point, um, you know, if you keep on voting for the same party over again, maybe you're not a Republican anymore. And that's, you know, something that, you know, Trump and the Republican Party definitely has to be worried about in battleground states going forward for for 2020. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about the Kentucky results, because um, we understand it's not a, an apples to apples comparison to, no. to 2020. And this is a podcast, after all, that is about the presidential race. But Emily, you know, one of the, the things that happened last week, just a day before, just a day before the, the Kentucky results came in, um, we had a poll from The New York Times in Siena um, that showed uh, uh, something pretty startling. It was two components of it. One, that Donald Trump is still very much in this fight 100% in a way that national polls released before and after, for that matter, indicate that he was in a much weaker position than, again, these New York Times-Siena polls that everyone took very seriously because people believe that they are uh, a very good pollster in Washington, for one thing. They're also polling the battleground states themselves, which, of course, as we know, do not uh, follow the national trend right. uh, necessarily. Um, and and I felt like when those polls came out, you had this almost panic that gripped at least the online left in, yep. in D.C. And you had uh, Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine, uh, the, the noted liberal columnist, saying that the Democratic primary had been a disaster um, thus thus far. Um, I, you know, are, are, are we just going to be experiencing this then um, for the rest of the year, Emily, that we have one day this panic in the Democratic Party that they're, uh, you know, on a trajectory to lose to Donald Trump somehow? And then a day later, the Republicans feel the same way and that they can't possibly win. Is this just what the next 365 days are going to be like? I think so, just because D.C. has a tendency to overreact to every little data point. What? Um, no. <laughs> and this 24-hour news cycle doesn't really help with that uh, that sort of tendency. But my sense is that both of those realities can coexist. Like One of them is not contradicting the other. The fact that Trump is doing well shouldn't be surprising. His mm-hmm. support amongst his core group of supporters has been pretty consistent. He's been consistently in the 40s hanging on there. And I think while everyone in Washington is really fixated on impeachment and the constant drip, drip, drip of scandal and revelations coming out from all of those hearings on Capitol Hill and depositions, um, most people out you know, beyond the bubble, as we would say, <laughs> are focused much more on the economy, on bread and butter issues, on jobs, on um, things like, you know, health care and uh trade if that affects their industry. I mean, there's a lot of other issues that are that are also playing out contemporaneously that maybe we're not talking as much about here, but um, they, they are trends that favor Trump at this point in terms of the way, the direction of the economy. And so I think uh, we are overreacting, I think, to some of the bad news Trump is facing in Washington. Um, we're also overreacting to some of these individual polls that are a snapshot in time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, Kentucky and Virginia as well, and some of these other local races in places like Pennsylvania, what they really reaffirm is that there is this realignment of our politics, of our party system mm-hmm. that predated Trump. I don't think that this is all something triggered by Trump's election, but certainly he's accelerated it where you're seeing really, instead of red states and blue states sort of 
blue urban cores and suburbs now Mm -hmm. and red rural areas. Um, I know Republicans like to tweet out these images of the map of the United (laughs) States with like all of this red everywhere and only these small dots of blue. But it sort of misses the point of where the population lies. I've heard land doesn't vote. I see that yes. mentioned a yeah. few times on Twitter. So, and, but it does reflect how areas that are more sparsely populated are becoming increasingly red. And that is in part some of those states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, the parts at least that aren't densely populated urban centers like Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. So, you know, I think, I think that reading one indicator as a sign of Democrats' ascendance or another as a sign of their demise, it, they they exist con- simultaneously. It's their ascendance in certain parts of the country right, and their demise right. in others. Yeah. Um, and and the, the tension is going to be like how you how one balances the other out in 2020. I, I got to say, if I mean, if I'm looking at both, if I'm looking at Matt Bevin's defeat versus the, the New York Times polls of, of battleground states, if I'm a Democrat, I, I I think I'm I'm actually legitimately worried. I, I think, look, defeating Matt Bevin was was great. It's obviously great for Kentucky Democrats. That would be their perspective. But I don't know how indicative of how how much of a comparison you can draw between that and what's going to happen in 2020. The 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 New York Times polls, on the other hand, I, you know, carried a, a stark warning. And in case you had not seen those those polls, it basically showed among likely voters that only Joe Biden. Um, would win if the election were today. And it was an incredibly tight. I mean, likely voters in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, I think he was up by one point. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernie Sanders was a little bit further behind him. And Elizabeth Warren, and the component that really grabbed a lot of attention Mm -hmm. in this poll, was was significantly behind both of those candidates in in most of the battleground states. Um, And it, it really pointed to I think the thing that would concern Democrats the most is that this split between the national vote and the Electoral College has grown only wider uh, since 2016. Of course, Donald Trump did not win the national popular vote in 2016. Mm-hmm. Of course, that does not matter. You know, the thinking was maybe it would. St- I don't think people would be surprised to hear that 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 the gap hasn't been erased since then. But I think they'd be a little surprised that it has potentially grown even further. And if you listen um, or read the election quants like Dave Wasserman and Nate Cohn, Nate Cohn who helped uh, do the poll for the New York Times, their suggestion is that it probably is growing wider. And that's a huge problem. And one of the reasons when you look at national polls between Trump and Democratic opponents, they're, they're in, in a way more misleading than ever before. Right. I think that that was one of the big causes for concern among Democrats, that they're trying to square all these different poll results that are coming out. And you're like, oh, I see these national polls where Trump is, is way behind all the Democratic candidates. And then the, the Times comes out with these polls in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. And it, it's like, you know, how how can you know be a, a neck and neck race in these states when he's behind so far nationally? Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, the first thing, right, this just applies to all polls, right? You have to, you know, you, it, it's good to look at them in the aggregate, right? And that's why it's good that right. we have places like and Real Clear Politics. also, we're a year out of the yeah, election cycle, right, right, so there's a lot out, of right? campaigning Like, you know, there, there are plenty of state-based polls um, that have the Democrats doing a lot better in these battleground it's states true. against Trump. I think it's that's something true. we should know. I mean, the Times-Siena poll have certainly gained a, a really good reputation after their debut during the, during the midterm we, elections. And we should emphasize again, that's why someone, at yeah. least in D.C., why this had such an impact is, I think if you were to ask people who what is the signature poll, the poll that we believe is the best out of all, it would be this poll. That's yeah. that's why there's so much attention but, on this. But I think after all of this, and if we were on a different podcast, we might call this Democratic bedwetting, right? Mm-hmm. But I think after mm-hmm. all of this kind of like roller coaster of emotions from Democrats this week, I don't know if much has fundamentally changed 
right? Like, you know, Trump did lose the popular vote in 2016. There's a decent chance he'll lose it again in 2020. But that doesn't mean he still doesn't have a path to reelection in these critical Midwestern states, these former blue wall states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. You know, it's a narrow path, but it's still very much there. His approval rating is a little bit better there than it is nationally. You know, that's that's still a sism of lot most logical path to reelection. I think I think that's that's kind of where we've been since the day after he was elected. I think that's kind of where, where we stand today. I, I would just add, though, that I do think there are some rays of light for Democrats in the in the results from Tuesday and, and primarily not in Kentucky, although that's a good news scenario for them, assuming it ends up that Bevin loses. I mean, I think if you look at what happened in the suburbs of Des Moines, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and some of these local county races, there were signs that the same energy that suburban voters brought into the 2018 election are still there. And I think for Democrats, they need to have voters energized to turn out and vote mm-hmm. and vote against Trump. And that is something that they're certainly emphasizing in the postmortems is that that energy is there. But I think it's real. I don't think that they're just spinning that. I think there are some good signs for them in terms of just how mobilized right. voters and are. And some gets, of these key places that they would need to win to, to right. win back Pennsylvania, right. and, and, and for And that gets example. to what you just reported this week, Alex. This is why you know Republicans are trying to increase their margins even further in rural areas because they see these trends in, in, the, in the urban and suburban areas. Let's, let's take a moment to focus on the Elizabeth Warren part mm-hmm. of, of these New York Times polls because, again, there were two components. One was that Trump, again, is in strong – is in – fighting position to win re-election. That's one part of it. The other part of it is how, just how weak Elizabeth Warren was in some of these numbers. Just as an example, among likely voters in Michigan, for example, a state that Democrats must win, Joe Biden was leading by one point over Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren was trailing by four points. Uh, in Florida, Joe Biden was winning by two points. Elizabeth Warren, again, trailing by four points. And again, in both of those states, um, she was also trailing Bernie Sanders. And, and this caused its own wave of consternation within the Democratic Party, because, of course, you could argue that Elizabeth Warren is the front runner in the Democratic presidential primary right now. And the, the fear would be that Democrats are going to nominate someone who the data says is, is a weak candidate right now. You know, if a lot of the data, because the Times anticipated this, right, and they really took a dive into some of the data, really focusing on voters who said they would vote for Biden, but not for Warren, which is about 6 percent um, of, of the mm-hmm. electorate. And, you know, they basically found there were two different groups. One was more affluent suburban voters who did not like her liberalism. Um, and they were pretty clear they didn't like single payer health care, for example. And this makes sense. These are people who until recently, like Emily had just been mentioning, uh, were Republicans. You know, they don't like taxes. They want to cut taxes. But they just they can't stand Donald Trump personally. Well, this is the kind of voter and you would anticipate this would be hesitant to embrace a more liberal candidate like Elizabeth Warren. And then at the same time, there was more of a white working class male. Um, actually, I shouldn't say it was just really more of a male working class group um, that saw her as, as too liberal. Um, and she struggled with, with both groups. And I think the, the question is, you know, I wrote a story uh, almost a month ago at this point. Adam actually edited the story um, where I described Elizabeth Warren among the operative class in both parties as a Rorschach test. Either she you looked at her and saw a talented, charismatic campaigner who could you know, argue credibly that she could bring change to Washington and that she had blue-collar roots, or you saw a, a coastal elitist who was far too liberal with her policy agenda um, and that she would make for a very weak candidate. There are really these two diametrically opposed viewpoints that are held. You know, She, she provokes this sort of um, ambivalence in the political community in a way that few other candidates do. 
to me, why this this polling data is significant for her is that, it, and and the data suggests it is more the latter than the former, right? That the the ideology, um, her ideology, her the fact that she was a Harvard professor um, is from Massachusetts is what's winning out in the public's mind, at least among the swing voters, and that's why you have to to be worried if you're an Elizabeth Warren supporter. Right, and it's interesting that this these polls kind of come um, at a time when when Warren is is now uh, narrowly leading a lot of Iowa polls. Um, we talked about it a little bit last week, but it was reaffirmed again uh, this week uh, when when Quinnipiac released a poll in the state showing that um, you know you know Democrats are increasingly viewing her as um, a, you know as electable of a candidate as you know Joe Biden or anybody else in the race, which is big for her because that was one of the big hurdles she had to overcome early in this race. So it'll be interesting to see if if she continues to sort of lag behind in these battleground state polls, how that will affect the Democratic primary voters who are really prizing that that electability. Right. And, and maybe, you know, her name ID isn't quite what it is for Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden yet. And she'll pick up there. I mean, one really interesting thing that sh- stuck out to me among nine non-white voters, both Latino and African-American, she really lags behind both Sanders and Joe Biden. Um, you know, when you, you do look, if you talk to Republican operatives, you will, they will say they see something in the numbers among male African-American and male Latino voters, um, a little bit more supportive of the president than they think. Now, that's a tenuous thing to, for the president to hold on to if, in fact, there's something there between now and Election Day. Of course, this is all one year out. Um, so a lot can change, but it, it is it is a red flag for, for Warren. To me, it's hard, though, to judge or put too much stock in some of these these polling matchups when the, when it's so abstract still. Mm-hmm. Like we haven't seen Elizabeth Warren and Trump head to head. I think mm-hmm. I haven't gone back and looked, but I would guess – um, pretty confidently that at this point in time in 2016, if you matched up Clinton and Trump, you would have seen Clinton way ahead. Um, I think that there's a lot within a general election that can shift the way people view these candidates. And certainly, totally. I would assume Warren, like most Democrats, is going to pivot more to the center as the, if she were to be the nominee and gets into the general election, she would emphasize her Oklahoma roots. She would emphasize that she grew up in a working class family, that her brothers are Republicans. Um, whether that would be able to overcome what I assume will be an onslaught of attacks of her as like a liberal socialist, you mm-hmm. know, um, elitist from Harvard, uh, I don't know. But I do think that it's hard to take what one poll is showing about attitudes towards these candidates a year out and extrapolate that to be how they would actually match up against one another in a one-on-one race in a general election when a lot more people are paying attention to the context. I I disagree. You don't even need to vote. (laughs) We don't even need to vote next year. We already know. We already have the the polling data, all the polling data that we need. Uh, Speaking of pivoting, speaking of pivoting, the entire Democratic field is pivoting to Iowa right now. We have seen this time and time again. Kamala Harris uh, some weeks ago, uh, actually months ago at this point, uh, suggested that she was going to focus her campaign entirely on Iowa. We have seen now that uh, she is closing offices in New Hampshire. Um, candidates like Amy Klobuchar are focusing there. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, Julian Castro doing something the same thing where he's now going all in in Iowa. It feels like every single candidate in this race has decided that Iowa is the state where they have to make their play. Iowa are bust. Iowa are bust. And, and my question to, to you guys is why? 
<laughs> because we typically in presidential primaries, of course, there's an Iowa candidate. There's someone who's going to move there like Chris Dodd in 2008 and say that, uh, you know, it's, it's it's either this state or I'm going to get out of this race. You know, usually it doesn't work out for them. But at the same time, you normally see other candidates talking about New Hampshire with a New Hampshire strategy or a South Carolina strategy. Or Nevada even. Or even or, or Nevada. The, the forgotten early state. Yeah. And, right. and, you know, you get some of that. I mean, certainly Joe Biden's campaign talks up South Carolina, but he's spending an awful lot of time in Iowa mm-hmm. at the same time. And so, so Adam, this is my question to you. I mean, what is going on here? I, I think strategically at where we are in, in the race right now, a couple months from Iowa, um, every candidate, top tier, mid tier, lower tier, they have no choice but to focus on Iowa right, right now because the race there is so fluid. And it makes it difficult to try and even like map out what will happen after Iowa until we actually see the results there. Um, you know, the, the last couple of polls that have come out of the state have shown a really, really tight race among the, the top four candidates, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg. I mean, they're all within a couple points of each other. So, you know, it, you know, usually in past elections, you know, if candidates say, well, you know, I'm really going to make my mark in New Hampshire, I'm really going to make my mark in, in South Carolina or whatever state, they can they at least will maybe have a sense of where they might finish in the states that go before that. And they kind of can map things out. But things are just so uncertain in Iowa right now. And it's, you know, very simply, it's, it's just the first state to vote. You just you have to, you know, make your mark there. You got to have a strong finish there before you can even think about what you want to do in any of the, of the states that follow it. I mean, you know, if you're Joe Biden, for instance, I mean, two Iowa polls now show him in fourth place, you know, all you know within the margin of error. But if you're Joe Biden, you come out of the Iowa caucuses in fourth place. You know, can you really bank on a victory in, in South Carolina a couple weeks later? Um, and and, I, and the margins are going to matter, too. You know, if 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 the results of the caucus finish, um, you know, as some of these poll results are showing today and there really isn't a clear winner and you have a bunch of candidates sort of at the top and, you know, who knows what the, the narrative is going to be, what the momentum is going to look like. So um, and then and then certainly if you're one of those candidates that's not in the top four, it's really going to be tough to make an argument, um, you know, for why you know, a New Hampshire voter or a South Carolina voter should vote for you if, if you couldn't even really um, do anything in Iowa. I think, you know, it, it's almost like, uh, you know, March Madness right now. It's just sort of you got to just survive in advance, take it one state at a time. You know, that doesn't mean that you don't lay the groundwork in the other states in terms of hiring staff and, and you know, and doing the, the door knocking and, and all, all that sort of thing. But I think for the next few months, um, whether you're Elizabeth Warren or you're, you're, you're Tulsi Gabbard, you, you have to focus on Iowa. I think the the fact that the electorate in the Democratic Party is so fixated on electability has made Iowa sort of a proving ground in a way that it's always been a proving ground to a certain degree. But as you said, it's it's not something that every candidate has gone all in on before. And it seems like right now, almost all of the field, and this is a huge field still, is all in on Iowa. Um, so for candidates, especially candidates of color, I've heard a lot of people talk about how Iowa for Obama was sort of the proof That's right. that a black man could win over white voters, that he could be electable. And that then convinced voters in New Hampshire and South Carolina, where suddenly support really swung from Hillary Clinton to him in South Carolina, because even black voters wanted to see that he could be electable before they were willing to throw their support behind him. And so I think one of the arguments you'd hear with Kamala Harris shifting her focus to Iowa is that She's not seen the support from the black electorate in South Carolina yet, but maybe if she she does well in Iowa, she can convince them that she can be electable, and that will then have a similar impact as it did in 20, 2008 with Obama. So I think for a lot of folks who are struggling in this race, Iowa could be that kind of proving ground to 
to show that they're electable. For the mm-hmm. top tier, though, they still need to have a good showing in Iowa just because there's still so many candidates around. It's like if you like Biden, if he comes in fourth, if there's three candidates ahead of him, it's not like he's out of the race. He's one of the few. Oh, he he, he might be, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> he might, it, would, it would be close. It would be dangling by a string. I think South at that Carolina point, I think. is sort of his firewall. Sure. That's. Um, but, but yeah, but I mean, but, but you know, just even those, uh, you know, three weeks or whatever between Iowa and South Carolina, that, that's a lifetime in, in a presidential sure. primary calendar. Especially nowadays. Um, yes, right. And, and you got to have absolutely. the money. We talked a little bit about Biden's money problems on the last episode. I think he'll be fine, you know, financially to get through. Does um, have that super PAC yes, come on Yes, a super PAC come yeah, along. Right. But it, it's, it, you know, it's so much, you know, it's, it's as much about just the momentum and the narrative as anything coming out of those early states. Yeah. I mean, the last Democratic nominee... Um, who did not win Iowa. Does anyone know who that is? Uh, Bill, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Bill Clinton in 1992. Tom Harkin was, of course, had something of a home state advantage in Iowa. He was the longtime senator from there. The comeback hit. Didn't, didn't win New Hampshire either. Didn't win New Hampshire either. Um, but look, uh, you're talking about Al Gore, John Kerry, Barack Obama, of course, and then Hillary Clinton in the last competitive primaries. They've all won Iowa. So it's clearly there is something there. There is some kind of advantage there. Um, no doubt when you win the first nominating contest. And, and I would just say we've both of you have touched on it, but there is something odd that has happened where there is clearly a top four in this Democratic primary right now. And if we haven't underscored it before, let's do it now. Pete Buttigieg is part of that. He has surged and thanks uh, in part thanks to his debate performances, um, in part because he seems to be resonating particularly in Iowa, which, look, Pete Buttigieg has a lot of popularity. His strongest popularity is with white voters. Um, Iowa, even in the Democratic electorate, is an overwhelmingly white state, of course. Um, so you have this top four. And so it's not like in past where if you were a front runner, you know, maybe you, you know, or you were the front runner, maybe you weren't guaranteed of winning Iowa, but you were going to come in second or third place and that would be okay. There's something about dropping all the way to fourth place. And this is yeah. such a close race at the top that any of the four could conceivably, even if the race were held today, much less you get another three months, but even if the race were held today, it's not clear who would finish in first and who would finish in fourth. Fourth place would be devastating for any of the candidates right now. And then, all the other candidates, the entire rest of the field, because there are still a dozen or so other candidates running this. If you can't crack anywhere higher than fifth, like what are what are you doing? Where is your path? If you're Amy Klobuchar, you have to at least get into the top three. I think realistically, she even has to win it. But you have you can't come in fifth place and say oh, we're going to New Hampshire, or if you're Cory Booker, or you're Kamala Harris, it just doesn't work. And so everyone has to invest um, in in this early state. And I would say, like you know, I caught a couple of Iowa Democrats. Um, yesterday, just to get their their assessment, their read on this, and at least one of them even was was surprised by this. You know, he always thought Iowa was going to be important. He doesn't, for for his part, he doesn't quite understand why there isn't at least one New Hampshire candidate in this field. And there's still time. Um, you know, he speculated maybe New Hampshire is just more expensive um, because of the Boston media market. I I don't know. I would I would think at some point. Someone has to go to right. New Hampshire. Well, and I, I think maybe part of this, too, is that I think there's always been sort of this underlying assumption that um, New Hampshire is going to be really fertile ground, not only for Bernie Sanders, who absolutely dominated there in, in 2016 as a neighboring senator, but you have another neighboring senator in the race as Elizabeth Warren. So I kind of I, I think a lot of candidates have always sort of viewed New Hampshire as belonging to those two two candidates. Um, but, of, but of course, you know, you, you have a good finish uh, coming out of Iowa uh, that, that could uh, very easily provide a, well, a springboard to New Hampshire. I would just argue, too. I mean, I, I get that. And that's a, probably a pretty good argument. But if you look at the polls, it's Bernie Sanders is 
drawing, you know, no more than 20 percent mm-hmm. support in a lot of polls over the course of the summer and into the fall. Elizabeth Warren isn't doing that much better there either. It, the polls aren't all that different in Iowa than they are in New Hampshire. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're very similar right now, which is, again, I don't know if people were just assuming that there is built in deep wells of support for both of those candidates when it comes time to actually vote. And that, that scared them off. But if you look at the polls today, there, there should be an opening, as much of an opening in New Hampshire as there is in Iowa. Well, Pete Buttigieg is heading to New Hampshire this weekend for a four-day bus tour. So even though Iowa is three months away, just his surge in the polls there he's sort of using as a springboard into New Hampshire. We also have our own Mayan Schechter from the state in South Carolina just wrote today about how he's now hiring up in South Carolina. So he he has a lot of money. That That was the case even before he started climbing the polls in Iowa. But I think certainly this momentum that he seems to be gaining now in Iowa, he's now trying to recreate in some of these other states. I will, I will say, I think we will discuss this more in future episodes of Beyond the Bubble. But part of this is most of the candidates are by and large ignoring the Super Tuesday states, yes. um, which I think if you had told this group three months ago, there would have been some real surprise about this. Some thought that states like California would really have attracted a lot of attention by now. That just isn't happening. We're going to dive more into that. But that is part of this story, that there is still this overwhelming focus on not just Iowa, but still the first four early states. Right. Um, and that's that's definitely part of it. And Sacramento Bee wrote a story about this week about how the candidates are just not showing up on the campaign trail in California. They're showing up for fundraisers, but they're not doing a lot of campaigning there yet. Poor California. It's always ignored in the American <laughs> culture. Am I right? So speaking of someone who was not ignored, by Vanity Fair at least, <laughs> Beto O'Rourke. Uh, we hardly knew you. Actually, we knew you a great deal uh, before you you left the subject of many a glossy magazine feature, uh, both as a candidate for Senate and then as a presidential candidate. Of course, now he announced that he is a former presidential candidate. It was a surprise announcement right ahead of the Iowa uh, Liberty and Justice. Right, couple, yeah, just a couple down. hours before it. A yeah. couple yeah. hours before it. He is the first candidate who was at least once considered a top-tier candidate in this race to exit. Um, a lot of speculation and, and post-mortems about what exactly happened in this campaign. We're going to get to that in a moment. Let's spin this forward, though. Let's talk about, is there anyone else that you could conceive of, Emily, um, in this race who could drop out in a, in a similar surprise fashion beforehand. Is there anyone who you think has any of the, the warning signs? Or, I mean, in fairness, maybe everyone just says, hey, we've gone this far. We might as well see what happens in Iowa. I mean, Julian Castro and Cory Booker have both threatened to drop out. Um, if they That's true. Raise right. Enough it's an, money. It's an, it's an odd fundraising strategy, but yes, it seems effective. It's, yeah, it's worked for them. Um, so it's hard for me to gauge how serious they were about Dropping out in the first place, certainly they are both struggling to gain traction. I think there is a feeling among a number of activists that they want Booker and Castro to to be in the race, to be on that debate stage, to have that voice, um, you know, having just a slew of white candidates and and maybe Kamala Harris in the debate. It's pretty stark considering where we started with all of this diversity in the Democratic field. And so um, I think people are supporting them enough to keep them going for right now. But it is an open question, given that, you know, former HUD secretary, senator from New Jersey, they, they have pretty high profiles. I don't think they w- are comfortable being sort of a John Delaney type candidate in the in the race they're running. And, and Booker in particular is staffed up well in Iowa. It's expensive to pay for staff, but it's also the case that maybe he has a ground game that could sneak up on people. So it's a little bit hard to see where those two are headed. 
Yeah, I actually think for a lot of the reasons we just discussed about uh, the the state of the race in Iowa, that we won't actually see many other big, if any, big names drop out between now and Iowa because everyone is already just sort of, you know, going all in on Iowa and saying, well, let's just get to Iowa, see what happens, and then then we'll, we'll go from there. You know, I think Beto could have very easily gone the same route as a Kamala Harris or a Julian Castro and say, I'm just, you know, I'm going to cut my staff kind of across the board and just mm-hmm. focus everything on Iowa. He decided, you know, that, that's just, you know, for, you know, they ultimately decided that that was, you know, kind of a, a last gas scenario, a long shot. Why even go through this for the next couple of months if it's not going to happen? Let's just get out of the race completely. So because you look at, you know, his cash on hand um, at the end of the third quarter, which would be at the end of September, he had a little more than, than $3 million on hand, which is, you know, right around the same amount that the Amy Klobuchar's and the Cory Booker's and the Julian Castro's of the world had. So I, I think that um, since so many of the Democrats see the Iowa race as still very open, you know, if, if you know, you see, you know, the Cory Booker staffers, you know, talking about, well, we still got a long way to go till Iowa. People don't make up their mind until the last minute. They point to polling results that show like two thirds of caucus goers or would still be willing to change their minds. So I think you're, you're actually going to see still a lot of um, some of the uh, what we consider to be bigger name candidates just stick it out through Iowa. And, you know, some of the other lower polling candidates who I think are in it just to maybe kind of raise their own profile. You know, they're in it for different reasons. The Marianne Williamson's and Tulsi Gabbard's of the world. Uh, Then you have, you know, Tom Steyer and John Delaney. They can, you know, they have self-fund. Exactly. They have unlimited pots of money at their disposal so they can stay in. Um, so I actually actually don't know if we're going to see that many more people drop out before. I think Iowa. Michael Bennett's in the race to drink beer with Tim Alberta, yeah. <laughs> which he actually did. Uh, Tim wrote a story for Politico magazine. Tim Alberta, friend of the show, of course. <laughs> um, you know, to, it, while they both watch the Democratic debate, yeah, I, in in that sort of like third and fourth tier of the race, I think you're going to see what uh, some candidates are inevitably are going to drop out probably this month and next month and, and ahead of the caucuses. But I agree, by and large, that for the, the Klobuchar, Booker, Harris uh, tier of this race, that they are going to stick with it. And I, I think a lot of them say, and, and here here would be the, the argument for staying in the race, and it's one that this Iowa Democratic strategist actually made to me yesterday, that if you're looking at it in two lanes, right, you have the Warren and Sanders lane, um, and obviously they're going to stay and, and battle it to the to the death in this Democratic primary. That's all locked up. But if you look at the other lane, look at the two front runners in that in that lane. It's Joe Biden, who's uh, the the seventy something vice president, um, who has struggled on the campaign trail and has lost support since entering the race. And then you have Pete Buttigieg, who is without a doubt the candidate of the moment, but is still a thirty seven year old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who has not faced a whole lot of scrutiny uh, in this race. And you can reasonably say to yourself, if you're Amy Klobuchar or Cory Booker, you know what? At some point, the voters who are interested in those candidates might start to look elsewhere. Maybe when it comes time to actually voting, they hesitate to vote for someone like Pete Buttigieg with so little experience. Or maybe they're, they're you know, Joe Biden is just not inspiring enough for them. And I think that is a theory that has that has really some merit. Um, we, you know, we touched on it in last week's show uh, for someone like Cory Booker to become a candidate who a more the sort of more moderate Democratic class begins to rally around, not just because he is a dynamic campaigner, but because he's electable. And there is a, a strong argument that Cory Booker would make a for a more electable, a stronger uh, candidate uh, for Democrats next year. Um, and so I, yeah, I don't think we're going to see anyone drop out. And it's going to be fascinating because even if none of these candidates break through, right, if Klobuchar, Booker, Harris, they all stay in the race, Andrew Andrew Yang, the Yang gang, um, you know, those candidates are, they're not going to win, 
um, if they don't break through. But they're still going to draw some support, mm-hmm. right? And then you're talking and about in a fractured field that could that makes a big difference in a fractured field. And and look, we already talked about how the four candidates, at least at the moment, are you know they're all between fifteen or twenty percent. That's incredibly tight. It's incredibly bunched at at the top of this race. Then you have a whole other set of candidates who are themselves maybe drawing between fifteen and twenty percent. It just it makes an incredibly fractured. And I will say, you know, when we argue this, and and this is something I want to talk about in the future, everything's starting to turn up Bernie, just just a little bit. I mean, Bernie Sanders's path yeah. um, kind of strangely under the radar the past couple a li- a little str- he has very dedicated followers. It seems like in most polls, if you look yes. at who says they are most certain about who they're going to vote for, it's always yep. the Sanders mm-hmm. folks. Yes. And uh, there was a Quinnipiac poll yesterday that showed the the percentage of his supporters who are dead set on voting for him way exceeded Joe Biden or even Elizabeth Warren's percentage um, at, right. at this point. So he has that base. You know, there was another story. He's beginning an ad blitz uh, per story in the New York Times um, that is, is going to reinforce support. And a lot of their strategy is finding just like Bernie did in 16, people who haven't participated in the voting process before, who, by the way, maybe polls don't pick up um, in this. And that is a lot of their strategy. And look, I, I think the problem for Bernie has always been, how does he get to, say, 30 or 40 percent in this Democratic primary? What we're, what we're, the scenario we're laying out here is that he might not have right. to. You know, He could win Iowa right. with, with 21 percent uh, right. support you know, in, in theory, and that's all it would take. And that's why I say that you know, things look... Um, right. and better and better for him. Yeah, and Pete Buttigieg's rise, I think, in a way, has actually, I don't know if it's necessarily helped him, but it certainly has hurt Bernie a lot less than it's hurt Biden and Warren, right? Yes. Because he can pull sort of the the uh, the moderate, the more moderate conservative Democrats away from Biden. He can pull some of the more white college-educated voters away from Warren. Not a lot of overlap between the Buttigieg and Sanders base. You, you me, and Dave Katniss, uh, our colleague and future participant on mm-hmm. Beyond the Bubble podcast yesterday, you know, it, it kind of feels like Elizabeth Warren is being squeezed all of a sudden because on her left, she has Bernie Sanders, who again, has a group of supporters who will, as long as Bernie is in the race, they're not going to anyone else. He is lock them down between now and and whenever he leaves the race. Um, on the other side, though, you know, she's starting to be squeezed by the right, by a more moderate Democrat, by Pete Buttigieg. And you could ask yourself, well, wasn't that the case with Joe Biden earlier? I, my counter to that would be, you know what, though, Buttigieg, his constituency just better overlaps with Elizabeth Warren's and Joe Biden. They both really pull, you know, draw heavily from white college-educated voters. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't Joe Biden's strength. It is Pete Buttigieg's strength. And he is, you know, really, ha- his message is really appeals to those voters, especially those voters who maybe are worried about Warren's electability or just on the merits of the policy are, are, aren't as liberal as Elizabeth Warren. So all of a sudden, I just looking at the Quinnipiac poll yesterday, again, Elizabeth Warren led. She literally led. So it's not like she's in terrible shape here. But you can start to see how she's getting squeezed on both sides here. And boy, it feels like the narrative around her has changed uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and yet she's still month. leading those Iowa polls. Still I'll, I'll leading those narrowly. Iowa polls. Trying to be self-aware here, um, even a little meta about how we how we talk about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what happens when you become the front runner. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she had almost six months of good press and rising poll numbers. And at some point that stops and it's going to be contingent upon the candidate to show that they can still continue to build their campaign, build their support. Um, and, uh, yep, you know, that's something we'll be watching closely, of course, the next three months. Um, OK, so uh, before we leave, want to turn to my favorite segment, uh, I would say. Uh, we're going to empty our reporter's notebooks to tell you, the listeners, something you hopefully don't mm-hmm. know 
Adam, you're up first. Sure. Well, you know, I wouldn't be a good editor if I wasn't highlighting some of some of the great work of uh, McClatchy's political reporters. I'm very flattered. Um, Thank you. Well, it's not your story, so <laughs> don't don't that get is. your hopes up. Wow. Um, you mentioned Dave Catney's earlier. Um, he had a great scoop a couple weeks ago. He got his hands on um, some some focus group uh, r- reports that the Buttigieg campaign had commissioned over the summer with uh, Black South Carolina Democrats. Um, one of Mayor Pete's big problems so far this uh, primary season that his support is overwhelmingly white. He really hasn't been able to break through with black voters, and that has particularly come through in South Carolina, one of those critical early states we were talking about. Interestingly, one of the most notable findings from those focus groups is that uh, Mayor Pete's sexuality, that the fact that he is gay, was a barrier for some of these uh, black South Carolina Democrats who are maybe a little more socially conservative, um, a little bit older, not, not as, as comfortable uh, with with that side of, of Buttigieg. This, this uh, has, has caused quite a, a few uh, reverberations uh, throughout the Democratic community over the past few weeks. I thought it was notable, as Emily uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, um, our colleague at the state newspaper in South Carolina, Mayan Schechter, reported today that Pete Buttigieg uh, hired three new staffers in South Carolina, all of whom are black. So clearly he is uh, he realizes that even as he's rising in states like Iowa, where the electorate is overwhelmingly white, he knows that if he has to go if he wants to go to the distance, he's going to have to start making inroads with black voters. And uh, the, the first big test of that uh, is going to be South Carolina. Mm-hmm. OK, Emily, you're up. So there's been a lot of focus since Tuesday's election about Democrats' performance in suburbs. But I thought it was interesting that outside of Pittsburgh, Republicans actually swept most of the counties. So uh, traditionally more blue-collar, Democrat, union-type um, type voters that Republicans won control of the counties. Armstrong, Westmoreland, et cetera. I mean, Allegheny, which is where Pittsburgh is, is still Democrat. But it just shows you this dichotomy that exists in our politics um, where these more urban kind of coastal areas and suburbs are tending more Democrat. But you look at some place like southwestern Pennsylvania, which is culturally very different from the area around Philly. And those suburbs and exurbs are not as populated as the Philly suburbs, but they tend they are swinging Republicans. So it's just a counterpoint to some of this hand wringing now that we've seen the overreaction from Tuesday is that there, there's two different trends, I think, going on here. And I, I'm not clear personally about who has the edge, which party mm-hmm. has the edge. Depending, right. It, it kind of depends on where you look and which counties you're, you're pulling from. I'll never actually forget. I was on election night 2008. Barack Obama, of course, won a historic victory in the White House. I was actually with a Democratic state rep candidate who came from behind. It was this big victory for him. And I was at his his victory party. This is the the southwest corner of Pennsylvania. And everyone was really pumped for this representative. And I'll never forget people saying they saw Obama had won on the big screen. They're like, uh I don't know about Obama. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a, you know, this was a, a sign then of just how the, the coalition was going to go for the Democratic Party. That, again, those voters who had probably voted, the guy had probably voted for a Democratic president his entire life, um, decided, well, I'm, you know, I'm happy for my local Democrat, but I'm not sure about this Barack Obama guy. Um, you know, the trend that has only intensified in the, the Donald Trump era, uh, I would say. Um, mine is uh, just one Note, uh, Tom Perez uh, crowing after Tuesday's victories for Democrats. Something to keep an eye on. He talked about how the DNC's data program, um, which has been refurbished uh, since 2016, which reportedly, allegedly was a mess uh, for Hillary Clinton, almost unusable for the Hillary Clinton campaign, got its first test run um, in Kentucky. And at least according to Tom Perez, the chairman of the DNC, um, went well. 
Um, and that is going to be something that uh, people are going to be watching closely is whether or not the DNC can play a productive role in this election for the Democratic nominee in a way that they, of course, infamously could not in, in 2016. The data program, a big part of that, that only really they can do for the Democratic Party. Something I think we're going to be talking about more, something I know I'm watching closely, whether or not the DNC can reconstitute itself enough to play a productive role, something to keep an eye on. And before we go, let's give our listeners one local political reporter they should follow to keep tabs on the election. Walner, you're up first. Well, since we talk so much about Iowa, I feel like we should um, note the the paper of of record in Des Moines, the Des Moines Register, which has been closely following uh, the Iowa caucus. I think we all rely on their coverage on a daily basis Mm -hmm. to keep tabs on what's going on there. So I'd recommend following uh, the paper's chief politics reporter, Brianne Fonnensteel. Uh, She's uh, B-R-I-A-N-N-E-D-M-R on Twitter. Uh, It's going to be an essential follow between now and the caucuses in February. Emily? I talked a lot about Pennsylvania today, so I thought I'd uh, mention Julia Taruso with the Philadelphia Inquirer. I just think Pennsylvania is such an interesting microcosm of the challenges and the opportunities Democrats have in 2020. And she's at Julia, J-U-L-I-A-T-E-R-R-U-S-O. And mine, sticking within the McClatchy network, of course, uh, Daniel DeRocher from the Lexington Herald-Leader uh, who provided great coverage of the Kentucky mm-hmm. governor's race. And still is. Has and still going on. <laughs> and the ongoing Kentucky governor's race. Um, he is absolutely a, a follow for everyone. That was Daniel DeRocher. Okay, we want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you to our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review. Or if you don't, keep it to yourself. Seriously. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I know Kristen said last week that she was kidding. I'm not kidding. Don't Please don't leave the review. Talk to you next week.